Uh, you good? All right. Here we go. <clears throat> Speed. Three, two, one. Welcome to the first ever live Mission Story Slam podcast. We're here at Indy Hall, and we're very proud to be a part of the seventh annual Philadelphia Podcast Festival. So, first of all, there would not be a Philadelphia Podcast Festival without a lot of excellent partners. For instance, Indy Hall's Podcast Junto, Tattooed Moms, the National Liberty Museum, the World Cafe Live, New Media Touring, Fireball Printing, Everything is Awesome, the podcast, OB Media Podcasting Services, Philly Banner Express, Tea House Screen Printing, Bridge Set Sound, and of course, the Philadelphia Podcast Festival, Podcasting Society, excuse me, the Philadelphia Podcasting Society all worked to make the festival possible. Thank you, everybody. So this podcast is brought to you by PWP Video, and I'm Michael Schweisheimer. I'm the executive producer at PWP Video and Mission Story Slam. We started Mission Story Slam to share the stories of the organizations that we serve at PWP Video. So those include nonprofits, B corporations, triple bottom line companies, and sustainable organizations. So essentially people who are on a mission to make the world a better place. Twice a year, we gather at Yards Brewing in Philadelphia and pick the names of 10 storytellers out of a hat, and they compete for a $250 donation to their favorite nonprofit. The audience also selects a favorite story for a $100 donation. So we videotape those stories for sharing on social media and with friends and supporters. We started this podcast to tell the story behind those stories. We wanted to learn what motivates someone to tell a story in front of an audience, how do they choose a story they were going to tell, and what was the experience like. We also wanted to learn more about the storytellers themselves. But today's a little different, it's special. Since we have an audience with us, thank you for being here. So we wanted to give you a little bit of a sense of what a story slam can be like. So I've invited two storytellers to join us, Dave Winston and Ashley Tobin, and we're gonna have them share a story and then we'll talk. But if you come to the next Mission Story Slam, which is going to be at Yards Brewing on September 10th, the evening will begin with a host story. So that's not in competition. But that means whoever is the sponsor of that story slam, and please tell me if you'd like that to be you, gets to tell the first story. So we haven't finalized a theme yet for Mission Story Slam 4. Themes tend to be broad, such as our first slam was that moment. We did one called Saving Us From Ourselves, which was an environmental theme. And uh, coming up with themes can really be a tough creative challenge, as naming things often is. Naming Mission Story Slam itself really wasn't that tough for us. It's a story slam for people on a mission. Boom, we're done. But sometimes, as I'm sure many of you here know, naming something is much more of a journey. So for instance, like naming PWP video. What does that name even mean? Are the letters PWP somebody's initials? Well, the story of the name actually goes back to when I was in high school in suburban Chicago. It was my senior year in 19, uh, (coughs) and uh, so for an English elective, I was, it's really not necessary detail, is it? So I was able to take my first ever film class in a high school, so I'm sure you can imagine that was quite rigorous. And for our final project, we had a choice. We could write a paper or make a film. I, for some reason, didn't feel like writing a paper. And my best friend, Jeffy, was very lucky at the time. He had a VHS camera. Definitely a wealthy kid, right? So we'd spent many hours playing with that camera, and he became my crew. And I decided I would make an experimental film, which basically was an excuse to spend a lot of time filming a girl I was majorly crushing on. 
She, uh, I thought she looked a lot like Edie Brickell, maybe even a little hotter. Um, so there were shots of her climbing a ladder towards camera. Or we, we walked the camera around her in a park, which is really hard to do when you're a kid and don't have a steady cam. but we did it anyway. And I think we came up with some other meaningful shots that we threw in to impart some, uh, some sort of themes beyond look at how hot she is. But you know, I was 17 and I was certainly more hormones than cinematic genius, so. Another side effect of being 17 was that we left editing for the night before the film was due to screen. No problem, how hard could that be? Well, I'm not sure if any of you have ever done any home video editing in the times, the very dark ages before computer software, but it was camera to deck, deck to camera, back to deck, hitting pause, play, record, rinse, wash, repeat. It was a lot. And uh, we finished our deck to deck extravaganza at a time that in my memory felt like the middle of the night, but it was probably upon reflection more like 10 o'clock. But we realized we needed credits. So Jeffy's friend Adam had come by to help us, and he was very, he's a great artist, really good at drawing. So he just started drawing up poster board credits that we would shoot. So somehow the title of the film came quickly, uh, mainly because Jeff insisted on calling our opus Muchos Frijoles, or A Lot of Beans, which in retrospect sums up perfectly the intellectual intent behind the work. Uh, so then we added our names. Of course, each of us took multiple credits. I can't remember who actually won the fight for who was the best boy. But then we decided we needed a production company name. So from some inspired place, Adam just drew out a logo of a green Pangea mapped onto a blue cube standing on point. And one of us, probably Jeff, because he's one of the fastest creative minds I've ever met in my life, just shouted out, Primitive World! And Primitive World Productions was born on the floor of Jeff Heron's living room late on a school night. And there was much rejoicing. Yay! So I actually did make my way to film school, and uh, from there on out, all my work was done under that name of Primitive World Productions. I even did produce some independent work for friends under Primitive World Productions. And then years later, after a long hiatus of where I was freelancing on TV commercials and television shows, even a little film, I finally finished a film degree at Temple University. One of my fellow uh, senior thesis students, a guy named Steve Barab, created this gorgeous 3D animation of that cubed earth spinning on its point and some frame grabs from that rendering became the logo, and after my graduation, the department chair actually recommended me to an alumni who'd reached out for a corporate video to be produced for an international automotive leather supplier, so car seats. Very, very sexy. And I got that job, and Primitive World Productions had its first serious paying gig, and it actually took me to five continents in 27 days, all in coach. So, that's where I started to learn that working in the automotive supply chain and corporate world uh, it was a little different, and that quickly drove me towards mission-driven work. I mean, what I saw in the factories around the world, the way the work really only benefited the bottom line, ignored the people, it was, it was very difficult. So after that project, I started to work with nonprofits, and that's when life got a lot better. So flash forward about a decade, and I'm working with a colleague who I totally respect named Ray Wells at an organization called FAMER which uh, I'm really glad they abbreviated it because it stands for the Foundation for the Advancement of International Medical Education and Research. So essentially, they have fellows in medical education all over the world, and they exchange best practices and generally make the world a much better place. So Ray was going to submit a new proposal to the higher-ups at FAMER, and he said, so, you know, we always just call you PWP, but what does Primitive World Productions mean? So over the years, I had to come up with an alternate story besides late night sitting on my buddy's living room floor, and I would explain that, you know, whether you're talking about cave paintings on a wall or oral tradition or working with the latest high-definition cameras, storytelling is storytelling. 
And Ray paused in this very thoughtful way, as he's very good at doing. And he said, yeah, we're just going to call you PWP because we work in emerging nations. And our board is not going to like the name Primitive World. It seems very condescending to the very people that we serve. And that was it. PWP video was renamed, and we're not looking back. So going forward, I think I might want to invent a fictional character with the initials PWP. I'm thinking something like Paul Walter Paul. I don't know why that's my idea, but Paul could then represent the founder and a founding story that we can come up with that, again, will be more glamorous than the living room floor. But uh, until then, I'm very happy to just have the initials that, to me, stand for the idea that we refuse to condescend, we refuse to exclude, and that no matter how primitive the world may look right now, we just want to tell good stories. The host story is always so much freer and easier, I think, than actually telling a story in competition. Um, and our first guest and storyteller today is someone who knows a lot about that. His name's Dave Winston. Dave is a producer with PWP Video. Um, he has over 30 years of experience in film and video, working on documentaries, news, sports, movies. So, but the other thing is that Dave has been, in one form or another, telling stories his entire life. And that really was why he's the producer of the Mission Story Slam and the Mission Story Slam podcast. And yeah, let's start out with a story for me, Dave. Um, yeah, I've worked in film and video for over 30 years. And the best part of my job is I get to meet the most amazing people. Uh, working on a documentary or a news profile, you get to meet people who you know, make the world a more beautiful place, make the world, make us all smarter, make us all healthier, make us more connected. And when you meet people who have committed their lives to doing that, it, it, it changes you. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I've met my share of assholes. And if uh, they send a documentary crew to interview you and you're an asshole, you're probably a flaming asshole because, I mean, there just aren't enough documentary crews in the world to interview every run-of-the-mill average asshole. Um, so if a documentary crew, crew shows up and they're profiling you and you haven't done something wonderful or you're not like the brother of somebody who's done something wonderful, you're probably a douche. Uh, one of the... One of the things about doing a documentary is you get very close to people very, very quickly. You become very, very intimate. Uh, you spend a, a short amount of time, but uh, a very intense amount of time together. And I, I wouldn't say that you're, you learn to, how, you know, you're walking in their shoes, but you make a connection that's a little bit stronger, I feel, than, than uh, you know, just knowing somebody casually. Uh, couple examples. Uh, I'm not a big boxing fan, but I, I spent some time with Muhammad Ali. Uh, first at his, uh, um, his training camp upstate. And the first time was at the end of his career when he was still uh, strong and, and had his powers. And, um, and the last time was when he was deep in the throes of Parkinson's. And because of the time we had spent with him before, it, 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 we were not friends by any stretch of the imagination. He couldn't pick me out of a lineup. But because of the, the days we had spent together, 
seeing him with Parkinson's was more like seeing it happen to a, to a close friend or somebody I went, had gone to school with. Uh, when we had been with him before, he, had, he wasn't one of those people who treated the film crew like, like they were invisible. When the cameras stopped, he was laughing and joking with us and having a good time, you know, as if we were somebody. Um, and then when he passed, it felt like it wasn't a celebrity. It was somebody... I knew somebody I had something had shared something with, and, and it's not always it's not only celebrities. I met um, I met a man named Bart Kamen, who was not famous. His father was famous. His father was Jack Kamen, the uh, cartoonist for Mad Magazine, whose work I loved as a kid, and and uh, his his work sells for thousands and thousands of dollars now, um, and. Bart's brother is famous. He's Dean Kamen, the guy who invented the Segway and the insulin pump and about a hundred other inventions. But Bart wasn't famous. Bart was a pediatric oncologist. He treated children with cancer. Um, but he was different. He knew that by the time a child with cancer had gotten to him, he had been poked and prodded and stuck with a hundred needles and, and operated on and tested and was just scared to death of doctors. So Bart never wore a white lab coat. Bart taught himself magic. So the first few minutes of your appointment with Dr. Kamen was a magic show. And when he had the kid laughing and having a good time and their defenses were down. He could get the kid to tell him things that the kid wasn't telling his own parents. Because he knew that when you're a kid and you, every symptom that you reveal to your parents ends up getting you stuck with a few more needles, kids start hiding things. They don't want to tell mom and dad that they have a new symptom because they know mom and dad are going to cry. Um, ironically, he died of cancer in 2012. Um, he had spent a career treating children, and one of the things that was special about him is he knew that kids aren't small adults. You can't cut the dose in half and give it to a kid. Their bodies process things differently. And if you know anything about cancer, you know that you're just as likely to be killed by the, the side effects of the treatment as you are by the disease. So he would invent these drug cocktails tailored for your specific symptoms. And after he died, he wasn't a famous person, but he was well known in the medical community and people, uh, people eulogized him but the real memorial to him are the thousands of children who are now adults and have families that he saved. And they number in the thousands, they could fill a stadium. And that's his memorial. And I tell this story all the time because I don't want him to be forgotten. I, I feel like he's a person I met and it's my responsibility to carry his story to the rest of the world. Um, not all the people that we work with 
are famous or have done great things. Some of them are interesting because they have just survived in horrible situations. Every year we would do a, um, for years and years, we would do a, a, a video for a, a nonprofit in New Jersey that benefits families with autism. They provide services that, that help kids with autism. And every year they'd have a, a gala, a fundraising gala, and we would do a video, we volunteered to do a video for them to show the people who were donating what, what they were giving their money to. And every year we would do a profile of a family in crisis dealing with a child with autism. And we would go to their home for a day or two or three and see what their lives were like. We profiled a family who, uh, they had a child whose autism was so extreme, uh, he couldn't deal with the external stimuli. He felt every touch was an attack, so he would hit and bite and scratch. And this child spent most of his childhood in restraints. We profiled a family um, with a child who, in addition to autism, had extreme physical disabilities, was told she would never walk, she would never get out of bed, she would need 24-hour nursing care. And we profiled a, a family, a single mother raising a child with autism and two other children in uh, Camden, New Jersey. And their challenge, among other things, was they were living in the most abject poverty that you could possibly imagine exists in the United States of America. She could not coordinate services with this nonprofit because somebody literally walked into her house and stole her phone off the wall. At one point, the kids in the neighborhood lured the autistic boy out into the street and stole his clothes. Um, we made these videos, these profile videos, for years and years and years, and, and the nonprofit grew and grew, and you know the, the demand for services for autistic children grew, uh, and they did amazing work. But after a while, the amount of money we were raising plateaued. It wasn't growing anymore, and some of the people speculated that maybe if we did better videos, um, they should bring in like a big New York production company and have them make a, you know, a glitzy video that would get the donors to give more money. And they gave us one more shot at it. And I was really surprised that year I got a call from the director and he said, yeah, we're, we're not shooting anything this year. I'm going to do a recap of what we've done in years past. They were kind enough to invite us to the gala, though, even though we hadn't done anything that year, and we went to the party. And I don't know if you've ever been to a fundraising gala. It's a lot of rich people sitting around talking, looking to party. And while there's stuff going on stage and they're thanking a lot of people, there's not, you know, not everybody's paying attention to what's going on. But we got to the point in the evening where they, they showed the video and the lights went down. And they showed uh, short versions of, the video, of five videos we had shot over years. And then at the end of the video, the lights came up and the president of the organization stood up on the stage and introduced those five children who were now adults. And the little boy who 
had grown up in abject poverty, was now working with Wawa through a program that this organization had set up to provide them jobs. He was living on his own. His mother, because they were able to take care of him, was able to get a full-time job and get her other two kids, get them all out of poverty and put her other two kids through college. The child who could not stand being touched stood up, smiled, walked through the crowd to the stage, giving everybody high fives. The girl who was told she would never walk stood up and with her walker and her leg braces walked to the stage. She was now living on her own in a group home. And the room was silent like it had never, ever been before. And then one by one, people started clapping, and this place erupted. I mean, it was the loudest, longest applause I have heard in my life, and I've been to a Springsteen concert. It was so loud, it shook the wall, the glass wall of this ballroom. Security guards ran into the room thinking somebody was attacking. And this went on and on and on. And that night they raised almost three times their best night previously. We were feeling pretty good about ourselves. Uh, we probably had more drinks than uh, you probably should at a work party. Uh, they made a lot of money, and the director of development walked over to us on the, at the end of the night and told us they had made over a million dollars in the room that night, in addition to all the auctions and st other stuff that they do. A million dollars in pledges, over a million dollars in pledges in the room that night. And she, she was very gracious. She congratulated us. And as she turned to leave, she said, I can't wait to see how you top it next year. <laughs> <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What are you going to do next year? Yeah. That's, that's, always, that's always the question. What have you done for me lately? How'd you get started telling stories? I, I, I've always told stories. Uh, they used to be called lies when I was like four <laughs> in kindergarten. And I would, when were they not I would lies? make up a story and okay. uh, I had no life experience. I it's had a good to, thing I you had to make stuff up, you know. Uh, oh, I went sailing yesterday down at the lake. You know, I've never been on a boat. I'm four. Well, well how how did you um, how did you decide to make storytelling such a part of your life beyond just spinning yarns and really yeah. getting into a, a life of helping people tell stories on film and then eventually writing. The film business is great for stories and not just the films that you're making. When you look at a film crew, you see a lot of people standing around. There's a, a, film, on a film set is a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, and it, it looks like um, people, you know, it looks like a, a, a road work crew that there are people standing around nothing to do. But what happens is uh, there are basically two sets of crews. There are the actors and the directors and the cinematographers, and they work while they're shooting something. And then when things have to be set up, the other crew comes in. And that's what a day is on a film set. We shoot, 
and everybody stands around, and then all those guys go to work and relight and reset and reprop and all of that, and then they come back at work. So there is a lot of standing around on a film set. And you can't, there weren't phones when I started, and there's really, you know, you can't be seen reading a book because, you know, they're paying you. You should have looked like you're doing something. Right, stand so, around importantly. Yeah. yeah. People tell stories. And these are people who have done amazing things and been amazing places and done all these, you know, and they have amazing stories. And as soon as I started in the film business and we stood around for an hour just swapping stories, I said, this is for me. Even, you know, it, aside from the work, these are my people. So... You really introduced me to the sort of subculture of story slams. Mm -hmm. I, I, I had heard about story slams, but I wasn't that aware. How did you first get turned on to story slams and start participating? I was a, I, I was a latecomer to the whole story slam phenomenon. I, um, I heard about it about five years ago, I think. Somebody went, oh, yeah, there's this thing where people get together and tell stories. And I was like, you mean poetry? I, I'm not a poet. No, they tell stories. And I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, I started telling stories at, um, at uh, First Person Arts here in Philadelphia, which is an amazing organization that in addition to putting on the story slams, does, does uh, storytelling events and uh, uh, kind of connects people with our innate storytelling tradition and right and uh, you know, the moth and these things, these story slams are popping up everywhere. And I, you know, I found my I community. I found my tribe. We sit around and tell stories. So, how did you take that that experience of being uh, a regular? Because you've won a lot of story slams at this point, yeah. Yeah, I don't keep track. Have you won a grand slam or two? I have not won a grand slam. I've never won a grand slam. Okay. Someday we should do a Grand Slam for Mission Story Slam. Well, one day we will, yes. But yeah, we're coming up on number four. We're going to need to give four. it a minute. We need... So how did you, what was the inspiration? Where, where did the idea to create Mission Story Slam come from? It, it came from a lot of different places. Um, one of the things about uh, what we do and all these great people I tell you we, we talk to, we meet, is we are so rushed during the day. We'll hang out with these people, but these are people we'd really like to go to a bar to and have a drink and have a great time. And we don't get the opportunity to do that. You know, we rush in, we shoot the documentary and we rush out and edit it. Um, I've met so many people I just want to hang out with. And I know you have too. The people that uh, at PWP, we service the, the nonprofit community and those people uh, you know, the people I've met in that area are people who are doing great things. And I want to I want to be part of that. And I want to feel that energy. And I want to surround myself with those people and rather than the assholes. So the initial the initial. So this is all to get a beer. Yes. <laughs> I want to hang out and party with these people. That was the first thing. All right. And the other thing is. Not every nonprofit that we would like to help can afford a $10,000 video or a $4,000 video. So the element of that came in, come in and tell us your story and we'll videotape it and you at least have that. You can put that online and at least tell your donors and your volunteers your personal story. And, and that's the thing that I find connects with people, not a sales pitch 
but a personal a personal story. And it was well, that's you know, why we do that. Yeah. And um, we tell stories for a living. We're, we're blessed in the, that sense that we can do that. And so it was putting these elements together that came up with Mission Story Slam. Well, I want to thank you for sharing the story that you did today. And um, I'm really grateful that you brought the idea of Mission Story Slam to me. And just really appreciate all the heart and soul that you put into that. Um, before we transition to talking to our next guest, Ashley Tobin from Connecting Coffee. I want to take a short break, hear from some of our sponsors and some of the fine folks who've been really supportive of us at Mission Story Slam and the podcast. Um, you know, we truly do believe that Mission Story Slam is more than just an event. We're really building a community. So I just want to make sure everyone knows that we are on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, of course. So please follow us so you can get ticket and show information for the next Story Slam on September 10th. And uh, you can also be added to our Slam mail list. Just go to missionstoryslam.org slash contact. And then while you're there, you can find links to all about Mission Story Slam stories and the podcast. You can watch a bunch of backstories. So we'll be back in about two minutes with the Mission Story Slam podcast live at Indy Hall for the Philadelphia Podcast Festival. The Mission Story Slam is sponsored by PWP Video. We are video with a mission. For almost 20 years, PWP Video has been designing and building successful communication tools for nonprofits and sustainable businesses. Whether it's a video for your fundraising gala, animation for your social media campaign, or podcasts to raise your organization's profile and spread awareness, PWP Video can help you tell your story in a compelling and cost-effective way. We're a certified B Corp. We understand the goals and the challenges of the nonprofit and sustainable business worlds. We want to be a partner on your mission. Find us at pwpvideo.com. Hey friends, it's your host, Julie Hancher, and I'm really excited that City Rising is returning for a new season. CUSP, the Climate and Urban Systems Partnership, provided funding to focus on energy. So you'll hear more about that in the next few episodes. Stay tuned to learn what exciting things Philly is doing about energy, how Judy Wicks got arrested twice, and more. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app to know when new episodes drop. Also, if you love City Rising, please leave us a review on Apple. That's how people find us. Questions, comments, other stuff? Email us at hello at cityrisingpodcast.com. Connecting Coffee is a chance to meet fellow nonprofit professionals and learn together through shared experiences. The conversation is lively and engaging, and everyone leaves feeling re-energized about their work. Our next gathering is an evening event, Wednesday, August 7th. Visit connectingcoffee.org to join the mailing list. Hi, everybody. I am Donna Saul and host of a new show right here on WCHE 1520 AM Fresh Perspective. I'll be joined by a variety of co-hosts and together we'll tackle topics ranging from metaphysical practices, health, nutrition, gardening, news, trends and more. You name it, we'll talk it. Join us Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m., right here on WCHE 1520 AM and WCHE1520.com, the talk of Chester County. Welcome back to the Mission Story Slam podcast live at Indy Hall. 
So that last uh, that last sponsor was from our friend Donna Saul at the Greater Good Project Radio Show on WCHE, and I just want to say Donna Donna's show is excellent. Uh, it's all about the good work being done by nonprofits in the region, and I really appreciate how great she's been having our storytellers on her show, helping us to promote Mission Story Slam. So if you're in the Westchester area, do definitely check out the show on 1520 AM radio. They also stream it at uh, WCHE1520.com. So I'm really happy I get to introduce my, my friend Ashley Tobin. Uh, Ashley is an impact-driven nonprofit professional with proven experience generating meaningful connections uh, between partners. She is the epitome of an influencer with the ability to provide solutions and get results through strategic planning, uh, identifying and evaluating business opportunities, coaching staff. She's a former business-to-business leader with the ability to bring people together and organizations into a community. She's a very organized leader with a dedication to problem solving and a commitment to sound fiscal management. And I'm really lucky to have known and worked with Ashley for a lot of years. Um, so Ashley, I know you prepared a story for us today. Yeah, so I, when you prompted me, I started thinking about why Connecting Coffee exists. So Connecting Coffee is a networking program that I run for nonprofit professionals here in Philadelphia. Shout out to my friend Sue Heckrott at the Independence Foundation. When she worked there, she started a program where nonprofits would come together to talk to each other and bring a lunch and sit in the same room and exchange ideas. When she retired, I took that idea and made it my own. <laughs> she and I still have lunch and coffees regularly. She knows that I stole this idea, and she fully supports it. I took it into a broader environment. Her audience was limited, where it was just Independence Foundation grantees, and I opened it up to Philadelphia. And uh, we meet um, about four or five times a year. And I started it because I realized that there was all sorts of good work happening in Philadelphia, but people weren't talking to each other to make that work, to leverage that work among the partners so that people moving through these systems could be better served by having essentially, if you can imagine a warm handoff from one nonprofit to another nonprofit. So if you were getting services, um, uh, let's say you're, um, an, uh, a refugee, an immigrant to the United States. You were getting services at one organization who specialized and had the right language skills and cultural skills to be able to help you um, in, in your new environment. And then you had a health problem. Well, what happens when you go to a hospital? Is that organization talking to that hospital or talking to that health center so that you can get great medical care. A lot of times that isn't happening. And so the idea was to have a an open environment where we have everybody from frontline social workers to CEOs of nonprofits come together and talk about things that um, cross all jobs, cross all of the things that we do at nonprofits. Um, so that you can meet people so that it was not competitive. There was a lot of thinking um, several years ago, especially that nonprofits didn't talk to each other because there was competition in the fundraising environment. And so the idea was to take it out of that fundraising environment so that it wasn't about specific projects you were working on or specific people you were serving, but instead we could talk about something else and then you would get to know each other. So we have topics like 
fundraising for people who aren't fundraisers and grant writing for people who aren't grant writers and volunteer management for people who aren't volunteer managers because these are all things that people who work in nonprofits have to do no matter what your level and what your job description. And so we have open conversations about best practices. One day early on, we had a group of about 15 people meeting and one of the people said, I have to leave early, but I need, I, I, there's such a great wealth of information here. Let me, let me just ask this question. I'm working with this family who has a housing crisis, but they really need mental health support because there's a dynamic in the family that needs to get resolved. I don't know who to turn to because my specialty is in housing. What do I do? And the woman across the table from her handed her the business card of a mental health organization and said, call me this afternoon because I know exactly who you need to talk to. And then we, they built a relationship between those two individuals, because that's really all it takes to build bridges among organizations is two individuals so that they could work together and find services for this family. And the family knew that the the worker referring them to the other person knew each other and could be trusted to provide quality services. And a lot of times that's what needs the, the bridges that need to be built among the organizations. Do you know the impact? Do you know what the result was of that connection? I, I don't. I just know that it, um, it has always happened in every time that we've had a connecting coffee, something like that has happened. Um, uh, whether it's, um, uh, a legal volunteer services group that is looking for greater cultural awareness and somebody else has built a program about how to teach lawyers about cultural awareness and they can share that information. It, it, it happens every single time. So I'm glad that you gave credit to your friend you've stolen from. <laughs> it, seemed, it seems kind of it seems so intuitive. You would think that nonprofits would be talking to each other. Like, why, why do you think there aren't more programs or uh, events where people get to, to meet each other and talk across sectors or talk across, I guess, verticals within the nonprofit community? I, it, it seems like there's a lot of opportunity to be talked at when you're in the nonprofit space. And what I mean by that is that you can go to forums and you can go to um, um, sponsored events and, um, and there are experts on the stage talking to you about their expertise. But there isn't an interest. I, really, there's not a lot of financial benefit to it. <laughs> I will say that you mean you're not making a living. I'm from not making coffee? a living doing this. I do it because I think it's important, and I think that good comes out of it. Um, and 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 so that's why it doesn't happen a lot. It, and and I think, frankly, it's a reaction to a lot of the social media and electronic spaces that we exist in. We spend so much time on email and entering data into databases to track the people. There is an interest in people talking to each other in a casual environment. And then do me help help me understand or help explain a little bit about the difference between people running nonprofits and what frontline nonprofit staff who those people can be and how much distance there can be. Oh, sure. Um, uh, um, in Philadelphia, um, a nonprofit can be anywhere from 
one person or even zero paid staff on up to thousands and thousands of people in a paid um, work situation. Uh, the CEOs, um, off, it is very easy to become very distant from the people you're serving um, because you're so caught up in the administrative stuff you need to do. The writing of grants, the um, talking to donors, the working with the board members, parent organizations, uh, you know, there's all, there's all sorts of things that take you away from um, the work of working with people. And so having this casual environment where people that are doing the day-to-day work, as we say, direct service, mm-hmm. um, is is and that's the frontline staff. That's too. the frontline st- staff. Yeah. So I didn't understand the word direct service when I came into the nonprofit sector, and now I understand it. So I feel like I need to explain it sometimes. When we talk about direct service, it's people who actually provide services to individuals on a day-to-day basis, whether it's social work or food or whatever the you know mental health services, whatever it is. Yeah, it's a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it breaks down barriers. It breaks down misconceptions. And it, um, it, it almost evens the, the, the ground so everybody can be talking about the same thing at the same time. Um, there's a lot of, of other stuff that gets in the way sometimes of having those conversations. It seems to me it's also like a checks and balances system. I mean, the, the, the person who's phoning it in at their nonprofit job is not going to come out to your event. So the person who you meet at that event is motivated and interested in pushing the bar forward. I, I think that's absolutely true. I, there aren't a lot of people phoning it in, though. I will absolutely um, give a, a, a shout out to all of my nonprofit colleagues that uh, there are um, so many dedicated people really putting in long, hard hours. Um, it's hard to break away also to to take an hour out for yourself to network and uh, meet other people and not do your job that day for a little bit. Um, the great thing and the reason um, people keep coming back and tell their friends to come is because everybody leaves the room re-energized, recommitted to the job they're doing and excited about the day ahead of them. We always do them in mornings. The only time we're not doing it in the morning is about once a year we do a cocktails event in the evening, which you heard about is August 7th. Oh, that's the cocktails one. Yeah. Good. All right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, clearly, Dave, you are always motivated by somewhere you can get a drink with interesting people. Cocktails, yes. It's well, all, it's and, all about and of food. course, it's also a fundraiser. So it is the first night of um, uh, Parks on Tap in uh, my neighborhood, um, a park that we've been involved in for many, many years. And the first night of Parks on Tap in our park is uh, a greater proportion is given to our park for fundraising purposes. And so I take the opportunity to bring more people in. Well, please name the park. Dickinson Square Park in South Philadelphia. And that name is familiar to... uh, Dave has decided that we're now going to call all of our friends who regularly attend Mission Story Slam missionaries. (laughs) There's no position involved. It's just missionaries. Uh, So... Anyway, so some missionaries may be familiar with hearing you talk about uh, Dickinson Square Park from the story that you told at, uh, that was at our last Story Slam. It was. Um, What was it like for you to get up at Mission Story Slam? Because you'd been, have you been to all three or had you been? I have. I've been to all of them. You are a very good friend. I 
I also think it's a fun night. It and is I know a fun you, night. You are never afraid to network. That's for sure. Um, and like, and you know, there's also cocktails involved, so <laughs> it works very well. It's very good beer at yards. It's true. Mm-hmm. It makes it makes the evening go very quick. Um, what was it like for you to get up and actually tell a story in front of an audience that night? I wasn't planning on telling a story that night. Um, I had I had come just to support and hear good stories. I really wasn't planning on it. Um, but I sat down at a table with a few folks, actually who I had met at previous Mission Story Slams, and uh, was sort of saying, well, how environmental is this theme? <laughs> and was telling my story about uh, my involvement in our local park and, um, and the years and years of, of stuff we went through in order to get a park renovation. And they stopped me and said, put your name on the list. Yeah. Don't tell us the story. Say it in front of the microphone. And oh, so even less practice. I you? had no practice <laughs> whatsoever. Um, but I've told the stories lots of times. And so uh, because we're so involved and it's so part of our DNA now that, um, that I've, I've told bits and pieces of that story um, lots of times. Having the time limit was a little bit challenging. Um, but uh, but. Yeah, it flowed. It happened. Yeah, that's the other lucky thing for me about the host story. Dave doesn't like quack the duck at me or whatever it is that you use as a noisemaker. <laughs> use a bell now. Use a bell now. Okay. But they, you know, some of our best stories have been stories that just mm-hmm. appeared. Uh, people who hadn't planned on telling us. Our, our first winner, Karen Singer, mm-hmm. uh, came up. We we didn't have enough storytellers that night, and we begged and pleaded and cajoled the audience to get uh, more storytellers for after our break. And Karen came up and told a story and shared, very frankly, shared her story uh, of personal abuse. And it was just another one of those moments that we've had where your your heart's in your throat and you're mm-hmm. just, you know, you're, you're sharing an experience with somebody, a really painful personal experience. And you know, it's nothing like it, but we get it. We get that all the time at Mission Story Slam, and it's it's one of the one of the beautiful parts of what we do. Now the second half is exciting because everyone's had a few beers, and you get new names in the hat. And Karen went on to to win that first Story Slam. By the way, she had the judges award that night. She did. So uh, back to your experience for just a second. I know you and making connections. Um, after you told your story, were there any new new discussions or new friends, or did we able to use the the story video? Um, I was uh, really excited to meet the the fathers that were there that night. Uh, oh, the climate dads. Yeah, um, because I have uh, friends on the West Coast who have a dads group also. And I just think it's so great to have dads groups because there's so many moms groups that there needs to be a little bit of balancing. And um, and it was uh, it was it was neat to see. And uh, I just enjoyed every meeting everybody there. Yeah. Well. I like who who was it who decided that you are the Kevin Bacon of Philadelphia nonprofits? Who gave you that that moniker? Do you That's remember? Funny. I um I or, do because um, or do you not want to call them out. Uh it was a group of people. So um I think I would if if I missed one of the names, I would be very uh, sad. Okay. I will there's um but it was a group of young younger people than I who were involved um, with the Spruce Foundation, um, which is led by um, younger professionals than I. And they all had gotten to know each other and they were at an event and realized that I had 
somehow um, secretly arranged for them all to be there at the same time. And so that's where I became the Kevin Bacon of nonprofits. Well, um, I'm just kind of curious, having now told a story, if you if someone was on the edge and not had their uh, their third beer yet, um, is there a piece of advice that you might give them to, uh, to tell a story at the slam? Uh, I think I think the the thing to remember is that we all have stories, and to tell a story that you know so well that it's really easy to tell. And I think we all have those, but yeah. it's a matter of of uh, taking a deep breath and remembering that you know it that well. So before we wrap up. Um, can you just tell the audience how they can learn more about Connecting Coffee? Sure. If you're interested in joining Connecting Coffee, everybody is welcome. Um, we often have people who are not nonprofit professionals, but who are caring and interested in the sector and the work that is done there. Um, so everybody really is invited. You can go to connectingcoffee.org, and we are on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and we post. Well, no Twitter? Uh, I'm on Twitter, and I don't use it. Yeah. <laughs> You're not the first person I've heard that from. Um, so, but you post regularly for Connecting Coffee on, on social? Yeah. Cool. Well, listen, Ashley and Dave, I really appreciate your both being here today on a Saturday. Um, it's been really fantastic to be part of the Philadelphia Podcast Festival doing our first live podcast. Um, I definitely want to go ahead and recognize the podcast uh, festival, the PodFest sponsors. So that includes Indy Hall's Podcasting Junto. Tattooed Moms, National Liberty Museum, World Cafe Live, New Media Touring. It's a, it's a good list. They really, they really killed it on sponsors. We, we need to follow this lead. Um, yes. <laughs> Fireball Printing. Everything is awesome. The Podcast, OB Media Podcasting Services, Philly Banner Express, Tea House Screen Printing, Bridgeset Sound, and of course the Philadelphia Podcasting Society, who all worked to make the festival possible. I really want to give special thanks to Indy Hall for hosting us and extra special thanks to our engineer today, Adam Tetteris. Um, we'll keep bringing you more interviews with storytellers from Mission Story Slam in the coming months. And we've, as we've been discussing, we are heavy into the planning for the fourth edition of Mission Story Slam for Tuesday night, September 10th at Yards Brewing. Theme will be forthcoming soon. But if you have an idea, absolutely feel free to reach out to myself or Dave Winston and let us know. And of course, we're always interested and excited to hear from people who want to sponsor the, the Story Slams. So like all podcasts, we really do benefit from your reviews and from sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues who you think would enjoy what we're doing at Mission Story Slam. Of course, you can follow us and share on Facebook, Instagram, and yes, we do use Twitter. Mission Story Slam podcast is produced by Dave Winston, brought to you by PWP Video. We are Video with a Mission. Find us at pwpvideo.com. We'll be back with another episode in about a month. Until then, I'm Michael Schweisheimer, and I look forward to sharing the next story behind the story with you soon. <laughs>